Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is my 121th show. Um, So right today, you see me um, with no background, and that's because I'm using my iPad today as we're having a technical issue with my own camera. But today, we're thrilled to have Kay Formanek, author of Beyond DNI: Leading Diversity with Purpose and Inclusiveness. And this is such a timely topic and one that's on a global basis, not just the U.S., but on a global basis. So, Kay, welcome. It's wonderful to be here, Mark. Well, I'm thrilled to have you here. So let's start off with, why did you write this book? And by the way, I love the charts in this book. Well, thank you very much. Well, I wrote the book because I missed finding a book that provides (coughs) strategic tools to develop the narrative for diversity and for developing a capability roadmap. Uh, What I found in my career, which spans 35 years, that often organizations talk about diversity, but when you really prod them in terms of, so what do you do then? Uh, You you got mixed uh, replies, Uh, not much confidence. So that is the aim of the book, to provide leaders with some confidence on the subject. And before we get into the book, um, tell the audience a little bit about your background. Well, I grew up in South Africa, and uh, that is a very, very important element for my work. Um, I studied in South Africa and the United States, also in Europe. And uh, then I became um, uh, a consulting and eventually partner managing director of Accenture. It's a global professional services organization. I worked there for 25 years. And then I retired to focus my entire next chapter in my life uh, to advancing equity, diversity, and inclusion within organizations, also within society, um, under an organization that is now global called Diversity and Performance. So um, how do you uh, define diversity and inclusion as it relates to corporations? I, I love the question because Actually, when you ask people, so what is diversity and inclusion? Uh, There are many different uh, answers, and it's so important to have a shared vocabulary. So uh, diversity in corporations is when there is a talent profile that is made up of individuals with varying characteristics that lead to a richer view on the environment. And when I talk about characteristics, I divide it into two big buckets. Uh, The one set of characteristics is what we call inherited uh, characteristics. This is how you're born. You know, my gender, my age, my ethnicity, uh, my ability. uh, It's something that I've been born with. Uh, That is important. We call it the demographics. But there is another container, which is what we call acquired diversity. It's, uh, you know, are are you more of an extrovert or an introvert? Uh, 
where have you lived? What is your cultural background? What is your specialization? Uh, what is even the personality type that you bring uh, to an organization? So those are the two areas. So that is diversity. Inclusion is all about the environment that allows the diversity to deliver benefits. You know, you'll only have richer perspectives when you've got a brave space and a safe space where people can actually bring their ideas to the table without thinking they're going to be shut down. Yeah, I think, and I think when we think of inclusion uh, and diversity, I think we are always typically just thinking uh, black and white and gender, but there, as you read through the book, there's a lot of different types of uh, diversity, um, mental, physical, uh, cultural, there's all kinds of things that, especially today's CEO, when you're uh, on a uh, global basis, you have to think about, and someone wrote in also Latino, but again, everything under the sun, uh, when you're thinking about that, now the CEOs have to be thinking about this because they're employing people, even small companies all over the world. I was wondering, what impact did growing up in South Africa have on you? Considerable. Uh, who I'm today, my lens on the world, uh, the opportunities that I've had, and certainly my commitment to advancing diversity uh, have all the seeds in South Africa. Um, I, I grew up in South Africa during the apartheid uh, era. That is where you had legalized segregation on the basis of race and color. I yet had uh, the opportunity to attend one of the few uh, boarding schools uh, for all the colors of the rainbows of uh, students coming across, uh, across from Africa. And I have to say it was in those moments that I became really focused on why do we segregate? Uh, why do we have bias? Why do we have in-groups, out-groups? And uh, that is obviously uh, where all my focus has gone to. What is the neuroscience of unconscious bias? And how do you actually mitigate that bias? Uh, so it, it was fundamental for me. Well, I would think that that's probably uh, maybe the most impactful. And <clears throat> how is South Africa? I'm just curious. How have they adjusted? Because now that's, what, 30 years into the change? <clears throat> yes. Uh, so, uh, you know, when you look at South Africa, and you're right, uh, we're looking in 1993 when uh, Mandela became president uh, of uh, South Africa uh, post-apartheid. <coughs> and uh, we are certainly, we're almost 30 uh, years uh, later. And uh, one of the uh, points that I make in, uh, in my book is the extent to which leaders have a huge impact on uh, diversity and inclusion. And so you saw that Mandela uh, was an excellent inclusive leader. Uh, he was followed by Mbeki and Zuma and now Ramaphosa. And each of them have a different way of looking at diversity and inclusion. And so it's a little bit of a checkered uh, path. Yeah, I was wondering, what did you learn from Nelson Mandela and did he do it right in your opinion? Well, Nelson and Mandela, uh, within the book, I explore uh, some of the leading uh, leaders, in, in my view, around uh, diversity and inclusion. And what is so interesting about Mandela is almost unconsciously, in an excellent way, uh, he looked at all the things that I talk about. He was highly committed, first of all. 
Uh, he talked about South Africa being a rainbow nation. Uh, he felt that uh, you needed to move from the ravages of discriminating on color. And uh, so he, he really focused on that. It's the first uh, item that is defined in the South African constitution. What is diversity? Secondly, uh, his definition of diversity is that it was not a dominant group. Um, he, there was a richness. Uh, you see, for example, uh, in South Africa, they uh, look at 13 different official languages. And that is important because what he was really saying is that there's no uh, group that uh, is uh, greater or more privileged than the other, uh, each having the right uh, to celebrate in their culture. Uh, one thing that is very important is he instituted the truth and reconciliation uh, 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 process. And uh, I think many organizations should also be uh, doing that as well. But what the truth and reconciliation process was is that people who had been discriminated in the past uh, on the basis of their color had the opportunity to tell their stories. And by telling the stories, there was healing. So he, he did many things. I mean, we'll be talking maybe about the Springboks later, but uh, he was very focused about what are the things that I can create communities around where we have a shared aspiration. So he did, uh, he, he was an excellent leader. Yeah, I, I gathered that from reading the book. And of course, we've all seen the movies and he's so incredibly popular here in the United States and around the world. You wrote that diversity and inclusion shouldn't be a nice to have, but a must have. In the book, you mentioned some of the statistics to support this. Tell us what your research shows. So, you know, when I'm looking at diversity and actually corporations, organizations have been focusing on diversity and inclusion really uh, since the 1960s, uh, spending billions on it. Uh, and yet there's still a sense that it's a little bit of a check uh, box uh, process. And what I really do is make a case of why it's so important. And I'm going to start with uh, the Gen Z or Generation Z, as we uh, call it in Europe. But it is a, a generation uh, that are very committed to diversity, equity, um, and, and really celebrate that. So first of all, if you're wanting to tap into that uh, group, you're going to have to take it seriously and you're going to have to define a richer term around diversity. Secondly, you know, ever since uh, I think 2007, we've tabulated why diversity, when it's connected to inclusion, has an impact on performance and it relates to more innovation and creativity. It is related to more engagement. It is related to best, better uh, customer understanding and satisfaction. Uh, you're looking at less fraud. Uh, you're looking at return on equity. So, you know, from a business case, there's a very important one. And then uh, what I'm seeing is that many people, when they're looking really at the sustainability of the world, uh, you know, it could be looking at the 17 sustainability goals. It is just the right thing to do, many people are saying, to have a more sustainable world. So there is a big narrative around diversity, and it is becoming more and more important. Yeah. <clears throat> Harvard's done many studies on this and has uh, shown that the return could be as high as a 30% return on um, on equity uh, by having this, and it just makes common sense, right? I mean, of course you'd want to have 
of diversity of experiences and and um, views of life and um, different ways of looking at how how to solve a problem as opposed to everybody growing up the same way and coming from the same background. You work with 50 organizations, uh, or maybe more than 50 organizations. Uh, are some of the countries and industries more inclusive than others? Uh, it's, it's, it's a great question because obviously uh, the environment, the societal environment has such an impact in terms of the operations of the organizations. And there are many uh, worldwide inclusiveness index studies on nations and what you'll see is the Netherlands, Sweden, Norway, Canada um, are some of the leading nations uh, in terms of being inclusive on the inclusive index. Uh, you also find uh, United States, but it's coming more from the perception of uh, the focus around inclusiveness for women, less so on some of the other dimensions. Um, and then you will have, in fact, uh, those countries who are less inclusive. And those are typically the countries that are quite uh, autocratic, hierarchical uh, in terms of the societal norms. And as a result, you don't have, especially on the inclusiveness side, a situation where people feel that they are brave and safe uh, to bring their points of view uh, uh, to, to discussions. Yeah, I'm, uh, and of course, we're seeing that as some of those countries try to stop people from voicing their opinion about anything in Russia, China, and some of these other countries, which is unfortunate uh, for the people who live there and for the world at large. What, what are the leadership and corporate cultural signs that a company sees the value and embraces it? Uh, there are a number of telltale signs. The first one is that they, these corporations are not pushing the diversity, inclusion, equity charter to a function. It is something that is really embraced as a charter from leadership, but also held uh, by the people and the ambassadors within the organization. The next one is that diversity and inclusion are connected to the very strategic mandate and goals of an organization. So for example, Unilever, they all say diversity and inclusion is one of our three strategic goals, and it's critical to us uh, being able to serve our customers around the world and to uh, promote uh, gender equity. So you see these statements. Uh, you'll often see that these organizations are able to measure. Uh, so, you know, uh, I would say 90% of the organizations that I go to, if I ask them, so how much are you paying on diversity and inclusion? You know, what is your budget? and what is the return, and what are you doing? Uh, that sense of transparency is not there. Um, uh, if, if you asked organizations in terms of, uh, are people incentivized uh, to be supporting uh, what you're doing? You often don't find it. So, you know, the organizations that are doing it well have a clear strategic narrative. There are incentives to be supporting it. People are being evaluated also in their support. There are clear measurements in terms of, are you making progress uh, in terms of not just, you know, the number of people, but in terms of the returns. Um, and so those things are in place. Question from the audience. Do you have any information for the idea of organizational justice when it comes to attracting and retaining talent 
especially Gen Z, as you mentioned. And if I could just ask, when you talk about organizational justice, if someone could just confirm what their, uh, their meaning of it. I, I think what they mean is in corporations themselves, um, you know, is there organizational justice uh, that's being done to make sure that people are actually uh, getting the opportunities and they're playing on a, a level playing field? Yes, and I hope that I'm answering uh, the question uh, uh, as it's being proposed. Uh, you know, one of the things that I talk about in the book is that when you talk about diversity uh, and inclusion, there is a critical element, uh, what we're talking about, uh, equity. And when I talk about equity, I'm talking about uh, access to resources, access uh, to opportunities, uh, uh, and understanding uh, that there is uh, bias and that, that, that there needs to be remediation of that. And often uh, from a European perspective, when we're talking about this organizational justice, we're linking it very much to equity. You know, how are you ensuring that there is equity within the organization? Um, so I, I, I hope, and for the person who replied to Jesse, just send me another note uh, if I haven't answered it and I can jump onto it. Yeah, I asked her, I wrote to her and asked her if I got it right. And if I didn't, she'll type in and I'll ask you that question in a different way. Um, so what did it feel like for you to be an outsider when you moved to the Netherlands? And how long were you there? Yes. Uh, you know, when you're growing up in a country, and in this case, it was South Africa, and you become, uh, you belong to the, the, the powerful group, um, you have privilege. I often say to people that they don't understand the power and the privilege and the identity that comes from it until they move to a place where they don't have it. And uh, so, you know, for those people who see me, I mean, I could be moving to the Netherlands and may many people would, might have said that I, I was Dutch, but actually uh, from a cultural background, um, I was an outsider. And it, it was a big reality for me uh, in terms of what does it mean where you, when, when you are no longer in the in-group um, and what do you start doing uh, to try to belong? Uh, and uh, so that was a fascinating experience for me. And uh, I think, and, and it's such an important point that I make in the book, power, privilege, identity are things that you only experience really when you don't have it or in a situation where you might not have it, yes. Um, how has the pandemic affected um, DNI? Well, a lot and uh, negatively. Um, you know, uh, during this period, there has been a rise in bias. There has been xenophobia and racism, uh, particularly against uh, those of Asian descent. What you saw is there had been, from a gender parity perspective around the world, a lot of strides in the last 15 years. And what occurred within COVID, there was not a recognition that working in a hybrid or virtual mode, that uh, the societal roles that women fulfilled often at home in terms of uh, their duties uh, increased because uh, kids were not going to school and uh, they were being asked to work at all times of the days. And many people, uh, 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 McKinsey did a, a great research, actually many senior women decided 
that they would stay in an organization, but they would like to have a different type of role, not a leadership role, or people actually left uh, the organization. And uh, what you also see is that there was a profile in terms of your front uh, line workers in terms of uh, uh, dimensions of diversity. So many people also being exposed and having more risk and not having the access to healthcare. So it, it's really had an impact. Uh, there were a number of organizations who kept their eye on diversity and they made gains. But what you really see, and your question to me was, how do you know if an organization is strategically focused on diversity? During COVID, many organizations took their budget that they had applied to diversity in the past and they reallocated to other things. So you really saw that there were a group of organizations that advanced and others that really regressed uh, during COVID as it relates to their diversity programs. Yeah, I think there was a whole bunch that said, well, it's a nice to have, but not a must have. And then some organizations really see the value in it, and especially for long term. And they look at it and say, this is an absolute must have. And this has got to be in the same budget that we would fund the accounting department, the sales department. It's that's not exactly like, right. like a sponsorship. Yeah, that's right. Uh, is one gender more likely to embrace this concept or is it strictly depending on the person? So the unique person and their story and their background and uh, how they've navigated through life has a pronounced impact in terms of how someone uh, embraces diversity. Uh, what is very interesting from research is sometimes the most inclusive leaders are those who felt most excluded uh, within their childhood and early adulthood because they know what it means not to belong. Uh, so there is a big story in terms of the self. What I do need to say is that in many environments, society has created almost uh, the leadership qualities or the expected leadership qualities of empathy and compassion and community and affiliation and they almost expect that it's going to be more dominant in women. Uh, there's no genetic reason for that, but it's more societal reason. Now, all of these words that I've just mentioned, empathy, affiliation, curiosity, connectedness, are some of the traits that are critical to inclusive leaders. And so as a result, research will be saying is when we look across the players in diversity, uh, you'll find maybe a disproportionate number of women who are really embracing this, uh, but not exclusively, I have to say that. Well, um, with politics the way it's become in the US and other G20 countries, do you see resistance to DNI? I mean, you talked about some of the companies kind of, well, you know, it was a nice to have, but um, we're not keeping it in the budget. We've got to reallocate the money. But on a, on a global basis with at least the top tier countries economically. What do you see in terms of that? Yeah, if I may start with uh, the United States uh, where I do a lot of work, what I have seen is that there has been a pronounced shift uh, through 2016. And by the way, it didn't start in 2016. I mean, there's some research 
in terms of in a 2012 study showed that more than half of the white Americans believed, and now I quote from the report, whites have, re, uh, have replaced blacks as the primary victims of discrimination. There is almost a sense in terms of a majority group feeling um, unsettled uh, by the fact that, and I don't like using the words, but uh, this is from the report, being perhaps a minority in the future. And as a result, it is really going to what I talk about, uh, 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 privilege, identity, power. You know, when uh, people feel that there is a sense that there's going to be a loss of that, there is a concern. And what has happened in the United States, it's really become quite politicized in terms of that. Um, now, this degree of politicization, um, I don't see as much certainly in other uh, regions around the world, certainly not in Europe. Uh, there are some countries where you uh, have, for example, France, you'll see that there is an increasing leaning towards the right, and it is usually on the dossier of migration and uh, migrants coming in. Uh, so you see a, a color, race, um, cultural origin, uh, being increasingly taken to the political uh, field, but uh, I haven't seen it uh, to the degree uh, that I've seen it in the United States. Yeah, I think some cases we're going backwards, and of course you're seeing opinions on all sides of the abortion issue where there are people writing in that they think the reason that they've um, overturned Roe v. versus Wade is to uh, make sure the white population doesn't lose its majority. So it's an interesting uh, conversations that people are having right now because of all these changes. And hopefully we as a society aren't going backwards, uh, but are looking forward. And maybe Generation Z is going to be the answer to that going uh, down the road. Uh, one of the questions from the audience is, what if there's a conflict of interest when it comes to a dis disagreement or beliefs within same organizations? So this is um, a, a very critical uh, question because often uh, people ask me, so what is the lowest common denominator of where you need to have agreement as it relates to diversity? You, you, know, um, you know, at what level is diversity so important that you're willing to have that diversity of a uh, opinion or value or so? And I usually say it's at the le uh, level of value. What am I talking about? If you have an, uh, as an organization and you wish to have diversity of perspectives and thoughts and you believe that that diversity will bring uh, better decision making, then you are willing to have some discomfort. Um, and uh, a, 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 as a result, many people are saying that leaders need to be equipped to feel comfortable with being uncomfortable, which often will occur within uh, an area of diversity because there will be difference of uh, opinion. And my view is that what needs to be in place is an agreement, a common language of value. Uh, so at the point that uh, you say, we want to be respectful to individuals and there is a diversity of thought which says it's okay to be disrespectable. Uh, uh, that you're not respectful, uh, that would be the point that I'd say uh, uh, you need to make a call. 
So I often uh, believe that it is at the value level, the value of transparency, the value of um, a respect, the value of hearing someone uh, raise something, uh, piggybacking. Those values are very, very important. And this is um, when there is a conflict at that level, um, my belief and my research shows that there needs to be a strong uh, value call at that level. I've got um, a question for you. Uh, Disney, they stood up uh, against the governor uh, and the Republicans in Florida, and now they are getting their, um, I guess, ownership of and control of the Disney geographic area is being taken away from them. Also, their yes. um, corporate tax breaks, everything is being taken away. Does, is that the job of the corporation to stand up and 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 let uh, politicians and the public know how they feel, take a stance on something? Or is it that uh, corporations should keep their mouths shut and worry about just getting a return on investment? What's your take on that? Yes, uh, within the book, I, I talk about it a, a lot. I mean, we... When you look at Friedman um, and go to the 1970s, there was a view uh, that the role of the corporation, of the organization, is indeed uh, to make uh, a profit. And uh, this domain of discussion uh, is outside of it and will be supported by society. Um, my strong view is that individuals, and I'm, I'm going to refer to Gen Z, uh, in, uh, these individuals are looking to organizations to take a stance. And clearly there is a continuum in terms of how much needs to be done. But uh, what employees are, employees are, are very cynical about whether organizations are really committed to diversity. And what they, they want to do and see is that organizations are taking a stand on what they're speaking about and saying is important to them. And as a result, there needs to be a convergence of that from inside to outside. So um, I believe that uh, uh, you know the, the future employees will be expecting that more and more uh, from the organizations. And as a result, this is why I talk about in the book the five stages of diversity in the organization. Uh, you know, there are some organizations that are saying we're going to do diversity because. We don't want to have any penalties, legal penalties. We call it compliance stage. And then there are other organizations, which we call stage two, which says we wish to do diversity because we don't want to be penalized by our stakeholders because we're not doing enough, whether employees or customers. And there are yet other companies who are saying we want to do our diversity because we'll be more creative and innovative and we'll make more money. But there are some organizations, and we call them stage five organizations, who are saying, we are going to be doing diversity because we see one of our roles is to support the 17 sustainability development goals and diversity, equity, inclusiveness is one of these. Uh, that is a Unilever, for example, uh, but there are a number of other companies. So, um, uh, I, I, I think to your question, uh, organizations are being almost forced to start taking a stand. Yeah, and I, you hear people on both sides of it 
feeling that uh, some people feel like, hey, Disney should keep their mouth shut and focus on bringing Mickey in and, and um, the right programming and over, over uh, overall to the community. And even Netflix has been taking a big hit that they feel that that organization also is more focused on diversity issues and what they call wokeism uh, than they are focused on giving a good return uh, for the shareholders. And so it's a complex issue that um, CEOs are grappling with and they don't like to see their stock go down, but I think a lot of them feel very strongly about this issue and feel like to recruit the best and brightest that they have to let them know that they will take a stand. Does that sound right? That's right. And if I can give an example in terms of organizations that are highly committed to LGBTQ um, uh, uh, plus. So if you are a global organization and you're committed in terms of your policies, your protocols, and what you say, that you wish there to be no discrimination uh, to your LGBTQ plus uh, 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 employee group. And let's say you're operating in Uganda, where in fact uh, people uh, who are from the LGBTQ uh, plus uh, can actually be sent to prison and even have a death uh, uh, sentence uh, for their sexuality. The question from an organization is, so do I you know, look the other way because I want to work in Uganda and um, uh, get my profit, or do I say to the Ugandan uh, uh, country, if you want me to be operating here, um, I need to have these rights safeguarded. And, and so I think it is a very difficult uh, narrative for an organization to say that we believe in something in some countries, but others not, because uh, it's gonna impact our profit. You're not gonna be credible uh, to your employees or your stakeholders. And you faced, uh, South Africa faced a lot of that when there was a lot of pressure to pull out of South Africa or um, not have shares of South African country uh, companies. And maybe that did help change the path that South Africa had taken. Maybe if that, if these com uh, people and companies themselves did not take that stance, maybe South Africa would have remained the same with apartheid. Well, certainly the pressure and the scrutiny and the focus uh, su supported the change that occurred. So a question from the audience, what are some of the best ways to start having the hard conversations about uh, DNI in an organization that perhaps doesn't recognize, uh, recognize it and is it's unconscious biases? Good. So, um, when people often ask me, you know, what is maybe one of the most important capabilities that we can build in our leaders and in our organization, I talk about uh, the courageous conversations. We talk about courageous conversations. And these are the things that you can do. You know, it starts by saying that it is important because otherwise people don't know why you're having these conversations. So what I suggest to a leader is to start with this. Diversity for us means this, and it's important to us as an organization because dot, 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 and it's important to us as leaders because dot, dot, dot. However, diversity is more than just talking about it. It's actually operating it, behaving it, 
And unfortunately, but this is how we are, are built, each of us have unconscious biases. And the way to actually understand the unconscious biases is to speak about it. And then what you can introduce is what I uh, have run for a number of organizations around the world, which we call deep listening sessions. What happens is a leader uh, invites people from the organization, in fact, to listen, not to give answers, simply to listen. And the question is, what would cause you to feel more included or have more of a sense of belonging? What is getting in the way from you? And give examples. And in, in fact, often in these facilitated conversations, because you're making about agreements of safety and respect and confidentiality and listening, what you start getting out is the small microaggressions. It's a difficult word because micro seems that it's a small thing, but usually the impact is huge. But what are the small things that are happening? Usually blind spots, unconscious biases, that cause people to feel excluded. And once you talk about it and start tabulating, what you have in hand is the ability to talk about, so how do we move past it? And uh, uh, so, so this is what we talk about, de courageous conversations. What you need, however, is that people believe that you're committed to this and that there is the safety uh, for people to be able to speak out. We saw that certainly during the election where people feel, felt stifled uh, doing that and wanted to speak out about what was going on in this country and that they felt that we were going in the wrong direction, which impacts uh, the rest of the world. Could you uh, please tell us about the five elements of an integrated approach to diversity and why did you pick those five? So already about 20 years ago, um, a researcher, Stefano, and has been built on, showed that if an organization says, oh, we want diversity and we want more people of this and that and this and that, but you don't have the inclusion, you know, that environment which people are feeling uh, that they can belong and are included. In fact, the return on the diversity will decrease versus increase. So already about 20 years ago, there was a clarity that in order to get benefits uh, of different perspectives, better decision-making, et cetera, et cetera, from diversity, you need that inclusion. Now, I introduced the third element, which is leadership, because actually what we are seeing is that the behaviors of leaders, and when I talk about a leader, it's not just the board of directors or the presidents. It's actually anyone who's responsible for a team of two or more people, that their behaviors and actions have a 70% impact on how an environment is evaluated as being inclusive. So, I, uh, the, so you need the diversity, you need the inclusion, but you need the leadership that is embodying the behaviors which allow an inclusive environment to occur. The two other elements that I talk about is purpose. You know, when people are not clear why this is important, 
And whether an organization say it's the ethical and moral thing to do, or we're doing it because we believe we're going to get a better return on our equity, or we're doing it because our, our clients are saying that it's critical, people need to understand why this is worth worrying about and committing to. So that is the purpose. And the last but not least is what I've been speaking about quite a lot, which is equity, which is access to resources. Because if you are opening your doors to people with different perspectives and they do not have the access to opportunities, to sponsorship, they are not going to be able to contribute. So you need that equity, and uh, we can talk about what can be done there, uh, but these are the elements. So diversity plus inclusion plus equity plus leadership plus purpose. This is what my research is showing is fundamental to be integrating around a diversity journey. How, how do companies, let's say, of 10 or more people justify not having a diverse team? So there are some organizations who are saying, look, uh, we don't, uh, uh, we, we, we're not really impacted by uh, uh, an external world that is demanding this. Uh, we are a small team. Uh, we are focusing on efficiency. Uh, we wish to have a quick uh, dialogue, shared understanding, and it allows us to be moving fast. So some organizations are there who are saying, actually, I don't need it. Uh, clearly, they can't discriminate because that is legalized against it, but they are not seeing uh, the benefit. What you're usually seeing is organizations who are interacting with an external world um, that are dependent on getting talent, uh, who are dependent on servicing clients who are expecting more and more in organizations in terms of diversity. Um, I don't see many organizations that can say this is not important to us. But there are a few uh, homogeneous teams who are really focused on efficiency. They've got a going concern and they, they say, you know, we're not going to focus on that. Could you please explain uh, the what is importance of the five elements of the virtuous cycle? Yeah, the virtuous circle is these five elements of, you know, diversity and equity, inclusion, leadership and purpose. And what you see is that when people have their eye on those five elements and they understand the clarity in the narrative, they understand the role of leadership to embody the behaviors of inclusive leadership, um, when it's clear about what dimensions of diversity are important, when uh, they are focus on uh, creating equity, debiasing processes, um, that uh, you really have a virtuous circle. Yeah, you write about uh, understanding diversity, maturity, and one of the stages is legal compliance. Uh, what size company do you have to be to be where this becomes a compliance issue? Well, uh, uh, in different uh, countries, uh, 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 and even in the states, uh, in the various states in the United States, um, already you're having uh, legislation where you're saying organizations that have more than 20 people uh, need to be reporting, need to be uh, uh, focusing. But even from legislation, 
You know, uh, even if you're an uh, organization with three people and there is sexual harassment of a member of uh, the team, you, you know, you're going to have compliance issues because there's going to be a lawsuit. So compliance is about, in, uh, these are the organizations who say, you know, we are going to, at a bare minimum, ensure we don't have any legal class actions. We are not going to have any quota uh, penalties. Uh, we're going to deliver on the law uh, within our state or within our country. It is the bare minimum. And most organizations are really at stage three where they're looking at how do I make diversity have an impact in my performance? How do you also make the people who are impacted by the diversity initiatives feel that they're not being left out? Because I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of that being posted online, especially in the U.S. where white America feels like, well, now I'm at the very bottom and somebody else is being given a job that I may be qualified or even better qualified for. But in search of diversity, which they want fairness, I think most people want that, they feel like now it's reverse uh, discrimination on them. What's, how do you respond to that? Yeah. Look, um, there are a number of uh, things that we have to be very careful about in diversity. Um, the one is that in organizations where diversity is about others versus yourself, uh, you will feel like you're excluded immediately. And this is why for any of the diversity programs, what I try to do is define diversity, the uniqueness of each individual being able to bring their thinking and their experiences. The next thing is that many people believe that diversity is a zero-sum game or uh, uh, it, it means that the pie is becoming smaller. Um, you know, for many organizations that are talking about how diversity will create more opportunities, more revenue, you're actually talking about the pie becoming larger. It's not about losing the job. It's being able to create additional jobs. Uh, the other way that you can do, and uh, I have seen some excellent examples, is the compensation and uh, uh, the, the impact on job and uh, success and promotions uh, for people who might not be in the so-called minority, but who are playing their role. Uh, in uh, Europe, we call it manbassadors, you know, people who lean in, men and women who lean in for others, um, and uh, you've, you, you, you've got some incentives around that. Uh, so I think what is really important once again is that strategic narrative, which isn't that diversity is about offering jobs for others. It's about how together do we create value through diversity where you have a role and I will, uh, are incentivized to play that role. I have to say I find it uh, sad and maybe a bit insulting to the public that the NFL, the National Football League, has to require that they interview at least one black coach when it should be an automatic that uh, they would be interviewing these folks and they would be getting the jobs in the last round of coaches being hired, there were at least two or three highly qualified black coaches that didn't even get interviewed. And that blows my mind that that would be the case, especially when you look at the NFL is 67% of the players are black. Not that they have to hire black coaches, but that they'd have to make a rule 
that they have to interview at least one of the three candidates has to be uh, black. I mean, it's astounding today that that would even need to be said, but it still needs to be said here. And it is, uh, you know, you talked about bias, but it is uh, when there is a strong culture um, of an in-group or a dominant culture, you almost unwittingly think about members of your dominant group. Uh, you have to have reminders. Uh, you need to have incentives. You need to have uh, uh, goals uh, to say, do not default uh, to the past thinking. And uh, so as a result, uh, you're seeing many organizations which are saying we want to have equal slates. Um, just as an aside, um, I did some research which said, what is the impact, by the way, of saying of every uh, four candidates, one has to be a person of color or one has to be a woman of uh, uh, the four candidates. And in fact, what you see, and this was reported in Harvard uh, by a researcher, even that stipulation has uh, uh, translates to a very small uplift in the chance or probability uh, in that person being recruited. And the reason is it's the one of the three. It's still a minority. It's actually only when you have an equal slate that you start seeing that uh, there is more recruitment across the board. There was mention of inclusive leadership certification. I wasn't aware of this. Are boards and investors expecting their leaders to go through this type of training and show tangible results? Oh, yes. Um, you know, it is uh, uh, one of the things that I have mentioned is that when I left Accenture, where I was uh, responsible for diversity and inclusion and equity and a, a sponsoring partner, um, what I did is um, actually uh, work as a, a, a visiting lecturer at INSEAD and at a number of other business schools. And what I was looking at is what are leaders uh, needing uh, to navigate this next period of time? And what I was getting back from leaders is I know diversity is important. However, they describe themselves, I'm not a diverse candidate. Who am I to actually lead this? I'm not comfortable doing this. And yet, um, a Deloitte research said that perhaps one of the most important capabilities of organizations is having this inclusive leadership capability because of the diversity that we're going to see within organizations. So in fact, many boards uh, and investors are going through the certification because they want to be equipped to understand what do we mean by diversity? What are the traits of an inclusive leader? What is unconscious bias? How do I mitigate it? How do I deal with microaggressions in my organization? Uh, what are the policies that are really adding value? So all of these type of questions and more, uh, uh, leaders are actually going through because they are saying, in order to lead my organization, I need to be equipped to have this conversation and navigate it. Yeah, I, I believe that they need to even be teaching this in business schools. Uh, you know, they were for a while they were teaching ethics when that was a big problem. It's always a problem, but when when it really explodes, and yet I don't think. And I taught at Wharton for ten years. I don't think that they have a class uh, in diversity and inclusion and how to divert, manage and grow a diverse workforce. 
do you know of any schools uh, that are, especially in the MBA programs, that are making this one of the mandates? Yes. So, uh, for example, in INSEAD, um, and this it, it starts, INSEAD is uh, um, a, a business uh, school, uh, a, a one of the best in the world. But, you know, if you look at their mandate, and it starts again in, in terms of the mandate, it says, you, you know, one of our key pillars is diversity. Why? Because our MBA has to equip people to be working in teams with many characteristics that are culturally, gender, uh, uh, ethnicity, because leaders of the future are going to have to be able to do that. And what you're starting seeing is that many organizations are having it as an elective. And uh, now within MBAs, it's becoming a mandatory course um, of that. And I think absolutely it needs to be. And also from an executive education, um, you're seeing that uh, more and more business schools are giving this inclusive uh, learning and leadership. Um, yeah. um, Mark, I saw that Jesse said there's a great difference between representation and inclusion, and I just want to say absolutely. You know, diversity uh, is, you know, about the uh, representation. Without the inclusion, that representation uh, isn't able to sort of uh, deliver uh, uh, to, to the environment. So absolutely. Yes. Uh, yesterday I was speaking with an Asian woman in the entertainment industry and she felt that companies and universities are putting a cap on hiring Asians and, and admitting them to schools and felt that people's credentials should be shown without name picture. So people are judged on their experience and merits. Uh, this relates to your recommendations on eliminating bias. What's your take on that? So um, actually, research is divided a little bit um, on this. Uh, the first thing that I need to say is that when you look at resumes, hobbies, pictures, age, name, uh, nationality, are uh, all things that are regarded as the greatest triggers for recruitment bias. So um, depending on your name, uh, the chance of being invited for an interview can uh, decrease from seven out of 10 uh, to three out of 10. Um, and uh, likewise, in terms of uh, your school or uh, uh, you know, your age, et cetera. So th that is clear. Now, the issue, however, is that if you have an organization that is highly committed uh, to diversity and would like to identify uh, candidates. Uh, when you anonymize everything, you don't give the opportunity to in fact invite it. Um, and what you sometimes see is in the very way that someone sets up their resume, it is within a sort of dominant way of doing it, which you know, just how you write your resume is a giveaway in terms of your background and your nationality, et cetera. So what I'm saying is that you need to be very careful about the triggers, but if you're taking all the identifiers for organizations who are really wanting to have diversity, that can be also a problem. The story of Nelson Mandela, and we talked about this in the beginning, and the uh, Springboks, did I pronounce that right? Springboks yes. rugby yes. team, uh, which was made into a movie with, um, um, uh, Matt Damon and Morgan Freeman, uh, which uh, 
uh, was a seminal moment in your country's uh, history. Uh, please explain the importance and what organizations can learn from this. So what happened was uh, that the Springboks have an emblem. So the Springboks relates to the team that uh, plays rugby. Rugby is a great sport in South Africa, but rugby was a sport that was really confined to what they call the Afrikaners. It's uh, the, the, the white populations uh, speaking Afrikaans. And in fact, uh, it was regarded as even quite a discriminatory uh, a group of people because there were very peop a few people of color who were admitted or allowed to play. So when uh, uh, Mandela actually was elected president, one of the first things that people said is that you should get ri rid of the spring box. You know, maybe you call the team uh, the Proteus or something else. Let's create a new emblem. And what he found, uh, or what Mandela felt, is that there was an opportunity to get an organization, uh, a country around an emblem by getting behind the team. And as a result, he said, no. Uh, what you'll see is that there's going to be resentment from the people who've lost now a lot of uh, rights and privileges. Uh, let's not throw out the emblem but let's get the country behind it. And obviously the, these were the scenes of how he met the team, how he met the uh, coach, um, how he attended the games, how he came wearing the Springbok shirt um, uh, in terms of Ellis Park, and how in fact in that year, I think it was 1994, uh, that the Springboks uh, won the World Cup. And I think it is a beautiful uh, story because when you have diversity, what you need is to create the connectors, uh, the connections, the emblems, the moments of celebration amongst people who are diverse perhaps in terms of how they look or their characteristics, but who are united in terms of some of the symbols. And that's what he did very well. It was a great movie as well. Uh, I'm surprised to read that women involved in the job market was stagnating with growing financial disparities uh, that you write in the book. Why is that and how can that be rectified? And why does it take three times as long to make the difference in North America compared to Western Europe? So um, it, it, it's really got its seat within uh, COVID. And uh, during that time, and I am thankful that people are talking about mental health and how do we support mental health and how do we create a hybrid uh, working environment. But what you saw is that uh, some women were actually working four and a half hours more per day because they were trying to combine something. And by the way, this is also for parents. I'm not only saying that it was predominantly women, but it was uh, 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 parents. Uh, and as a result, you had, as I said, uh, women leaving uh, the job market because there was difficulty in terms of combining. Now, I think there is a great opportunity in terms of, dare we say, post-COVID with uh, organizations thinking about what is the new reality? Um, how can we create this virtual environment with a hybrid environment? How do we learn from the lessons? How do we create opportunities? Uh, so uh, I, I think, uh, as I say in the book, there is really a moment of truth now in terms of how 
do organizations operationalize their business uh, model to allow for more diversity uh, through virtual working? Here we are, we're at the final minute here, and I'm wondering lastly, with politics, especially in the US going to extremes, many people mocking the concept of wokeism and with all the loss of diversity momentum, will Generation Z make sure this happens? Is that what you're seeing? So I, Gen Z, I, I am a mother, three daughters, uh, th three kids, two daughters, a son, and what I see is that they are less biased. In fact, the younger generations are less biased because they've got the social network and, uh, uh, and, and they are influenced and they are really believing in a, a lot of things that diversity inclusiveness is important. So I think that Gen Z is very important, but I think leaders who are still at the top of our corporations, who are not the Gen Z uh, in the main, have such an important responsibility for tapping into Gen Z, uh, uh, creating reverse uh, mentoring. Uh, so I, I think it's the leaders and the Gen Z working together. Well, Kay, I have to say thank you so much for spending the time today. And your book was fabulous. And I think every leader needs to read this book, not just corporations, but on all spectra of leadership. So I'm hoping uh, that we're gonna have you back again when you write another book about this and see how much progress we've made over time. Thank you so much. And I want to say also this audience uh, for their questions and Mark, uh, just for an amazing podcast. So thank you so much. Thank you again. Have a great weekend, everybody. Please take care. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.